Welcome to the Advisor Talk podcast channel by Stuart Group. This is Nick Stewart, Financial Advisor and CEO at Stuart Group. To get updates on our latest podcast episodes, hit the follow button on our SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. You can find past episodes of the show and more information online at www.stuartgroup.co.nz. In just a few months, COVID-19 traveled from China to more than 200 other countries. It has now killed more than 330,000 people, forced organizations and individuals to embrace new practices such as remote working, and years' worth of technology shifts have occurred and materialized in a matter of months. The term frequent flyer is going to be an acronym, and many think the pandemic spelled the death of market economies and globalization. Our Foreign Affairs Minister, Winston Peters, said, and I quote, the pitfalls of globalization have laid out dramatically before us, and some of us have known for a long, long time and have been saying it. So let's talk about the topic of every discussion of late, the pitfalls of globalization and the need to manufacture products in New Zealand especially those needed in a crisis. For today's podcast, I have Nathan Smith from Wellington joining me via Zoom. Nathan is the chief editor at the New Zealand Initiative. He brings a depth of experience in writing about business and policy from his eight years as a reporter for the National Business Review, commonly referred to as the MBR. During his time at the NBR, he wrote weekly columns on foreign affairs and trade and coordinated the newspaper's feature section and covered the country's most exciting technology companies and startups. Welcome, Nathan. How are you doing? Excellent. It's uh, not so windy down in Wellington, so it makes everything easier. And you've enjoyed your shift change of environment from Auckland to Wellington? Yeah, look, it's smaller. Um, It's a bit of a toy city here. Uh, Everyone seems nice. It's a bit clicky. And, you know, you've mentioned the pandemic before and, and some of the lockdown. Um, it does take about six weeks to form a habit. But so I imagine the opposite is true as well. And uh, if I live in the city, but there's very few people still wandering around, even on, on weekends. So maybe once their Netflix subscription runs out, they'll decide to visit uh, restaurants again. Um, but uh, potentially we are in a new normal and it kind of feels like it. I've got a few questions that um, I'd just like to run past you and then we can have a little bit of a Q&A. So the first one is, you know, globalization in the sense of countries relying on all sorts of critical bits and pieces to be manufactured in mainly China has taken a hit. Do you think this pandemic has bled alarm bells over that behavior? Yeah, the largest um, lesson I think people have learned normal people, Main Street, have learned um, over the last nine or eight weeks is that supply chains are both robust and fragile. Um, They're robust in the sense that there is a lot of redundancy and, you know, when you can't source certain materials from Vietnam, um, you can try to source them from Thailand or China or or elsewhere. Uh, That, however, does take time. And in in good economic times, that's fine. You can spend a couple of months shifting your factories around. Uh, but in, in tough times and in, in crunch times, like we've, like we've seen, um, it, those ro- that robustness, that redundancy becomes fragile, uh, especially when uh, governments 
they plan for the future um, and they don't expect to have problems like this so they don't stockpile we saw this with the personal protective equipment in New Zealand there just simply wasn't enough masks and uh, um, gowns and, and gloves uh, actually physically in New Zealand and we didn't really manufacture too many here um, so we found ourselves in a little bit of a problem that's probably true with a lot of materials because you can just essentially just order up another container why stockpile too much um, that can get a little lazy and governments, I think, probably are uh, reconsidering what they do for stockpiling, which will cost money, and they do need to uh, turn over those stockpiles occasionally. So there's a constant purchase program going on there as well. But we'll leave that up to the civil service to deal with that. Hopefully they have learned some lessons. But for most people, I think they've realized uh, that a lot of the things that uh, appear on shop shelves uh, down at their local mart are not built um, nearby, never have been built nearby. Uh, and without these... Um, these supply chains they probably would never have access to. Uh, I actually wrote a, um, a research note a handful of weeks ago ca uh, cautioning uh, the sentiment that we're starting to feel, which is probably best ca categorized as anti-globalization. Mm. Uh, New Zealand has uh, had a, put a lot of political and civil service effort into setting up what I can only really call a basket of free trade deals. Um, uh, they're big ones. We were the first to, to create a free trade deal with all three parts of China, so Taiwan, Hong Kong, and China mainland itself. No one else has done that. We're actually in the middle of upgrading that FTA at the moment. Um, most people a few years ago would have seen some headlines about the TPP, which eventually turned into the CPTPP. Um, that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. At one point, it did have America in it, but with the change of government four years ago there, they decided to extract themselves. Uh, this week, we had China wants to get involved in the TPP. Um, the whole point of the TPP was creating a set of rules and um, metrics uh, that anybody uh, could, could join if they but reached those. So that's a good sign that there is still some connection around Asia Pacific uh, for these for these big trade deals. But it's not just those two main ones. New Zealand has a handful of others that are, that are large. Uh, another one with ASEAN or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is uh, which again is a, a lot of our export market. We have a fairly decent FTA with them. Um, so in other words, MFAT, our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, have done extremely well over the last 30 years um, to ensure that New Zealand goods can reach multiple markets. Um, so we shouldn't really be pushing back on that. And I hear from, from, good, um, from good sources that they are a little concerned about this uh, new anti-globalization sentiment. Uh, on the other hand, you have the private sector whose responsibility it is to create export goods and send them overseas via container ships or, or, or however. They have tended to see globalization as exporting to China, um, which is probably useful in the sense that, you know, the past 30 years, 20 years at least, uh, China's e economy has grown by about 6 or 8%. So there's plenty of capacity in China for New Zealand's goods. Why wouldn't you send your goods over there? Uh, but there's so many other options for New Zealand manufacturers uh, that the New Zealand uh, civil service has set up with FTAs uh, that I think another lesson has been learned over the past couple of weeks is we're perhaps too reliant on a single export market. Uh, when we have so many other options, it's probably best now that boards start to discuss uh, how they can perhaps leverage the ASEAN FDA, how they can leverage the CPP, uh, 
CPTPP. We're going to Japan potentially or the Philippines. Um, and of course, we've got connections now with South America. So there's plenty of other markets. And again, but going back to what I said earlier, it does take time to move um, uh, factories or to create new lines of communication with different companies um, in, these, in these new markets. But I believe the redundancy does need to be uh, put back in place. And I think New Zealand would be stronger if we come out of the COVID crisis, um, looking at the options we have and leveraging as many of them as possible. Now, about 16 or 17 countries that wrap around the equator um, many of which we have excellent relationships with, which have developed themselves to the point now where they're able to competently create um, microchips, uh, um, which means cell phones, which means um, good computing models, which means they're, they're at a level of intelligence and development uh, in, in those societies that we can start sending our, our finished product goods to. Um, in other words, it doesn't just have to be China anymore. Uh, there are a lot of other countries competing um, and, and, and actually growing at similar speeds that China was 20 years ago. And of course, again, with this COVID crisis, uh, China, uh, if you believe the numbers, is now dropping down to um, 1% or 2%, some say even 0% growth this year because of what's just happened. Um, and I think it's time now for globalization to actually uh, live up to its name rather than just uh, delivering things to China. And, you know, much has been spoken about the fact that people acknowledge that globalization has lifted millions of people out of poverty. Uh, it's brought in foreign investors and foreign investment, investment capital, uh, cheaper consumer goods, uh, diversity to New Zealand. Therefore, you know, isolationism, trade barriers and tariffs are exactly what caused the, the Great Depression in the 1930s. More recently, the think big strategy of the Muldoon era in the 1980s pushed us into an economic and financial disaster. Do you think we can draw any lessons from those historical significant events. Yeah, don't do it. Um, <laughs> the, the amount of energy and the amount of effort that has gone into, look, you're not going to roll back containerization. Um, mm. And to, to be fair, globalization is not really a political project. It's more of a function or an emergent property of technology. Um, simply put, once you invent uh, container ships with containerization, with refrigeration uh, that can go, you know, halfway across the world. You, you can send um, flowers from New Zealand uh, fields to uh, China or, or Japan, and they will appear at the docks as if they were just pulled up yesterday. Uh, I mean, there's a, the, the amount of technology that goes into this shipping is, is incredible. That, on top of it, we have uh, a communications technology called the internet, uh, which, by a definition, connects the planet in one set of wires uh, and you know with one default assumption of the language on that which is english thankfully that's that's the that's the lingua franca in new zealand as well but it's also the lingua franca of the entire planet now so those two technology pieces on their own will mean that no matter what political projects or political um uh, mood uh, shift happens after covid19 globalization as an effect will remain uh, and, it, and you're right, it has lifted a lot of people out of poverty. Um, using China as an example again, there are still about half a billion people uh, in, in China who are living on sub-Saharan poverty, which is about 2 or $3 a day. But there's the balance of, of that, the, the remainder are living, you know, middle-class lifestyles or, or lower-class lifestyles. And there are millions, tens of millions of in, in the super-rich category. Um, you know, there's a bit of an imbalance in China for that, and they do have to um, keep an eye on, on those different wealth inequalities that they have. But simply put, 
China in 2020 is a completely different country from even in, in 1920. Uh, I think you can, you can look at side-by-side -side comparisons of photos um, and, and, and see the difference. Same in, in a lot of places in sub-Saharan Africa even. Um, and the closer you get to coasts, no matter where you are on the planet, the better life becomes for you. Uh, hence, um, we are more connected now than ever. We, we share each other's pain and suffering through the internet. We've seen that uh, over this lap past weekend with uh, some things that are happening in America, those, those sentiments shifted across the world uh, very quickly. We, we shared in each other's grievances, but also our politics are now in our pockets, quite literally with the cell phones. Um, and I think to, to sort of bring it into perspective, um, the, the reason Donald Trump uh, in, in America decided to reappraise or remodel the NAFTA agreement and, and, and turn it into a new one was that one, when that FTA between uh, Canada, America and Mexico was actually set up, the cell phone hadn't been invented. Mm. Um, you know, all these years later, most commerce is done via, at least with some components of the internet, e-commerce on your cell phone, smartphones. So to have an FTA that wasn't even built during the time of the smartphone or during the time of e-commerce um, is simply out of date. And how fast has that moved? That was, you know, think back, that was the Clinton era when they, when they passed the NAFTA, the first NAFTA agreement. That's within, you know, the millennials generation. Um, and it's going to move a lot faster after this. Um, so regardless, I think, of political will or, you know, slamming on the brakes, um, there's a few instances in New Zealand where we're starting to get a little concerned about what New Zealand might be doing to dissuade a growth in um, globalization. Um, I, I think the fact that these technology pieces will remain, and there's really nothing politicians can do about containerization and the internet, I think globalization is here to stay. And I think a lot of developing countries will appreciate that. Uh, and there's still a lot of money to be made. The first trillionaire is still to be um, you know, marked in history, and that will come within the next 10 years, I guarantee. We're always starting to talk about Jeff Bezos, the, the owner of uh, Amazon, as being potentially the first trillionaire. Um, Apple was the first trillion dollar company with market cap. Um, and that's going to become more common. Uh, there was a time when it was surprising to see a market cap with a with billion dollars on it. Uh, now that's just normal. Uh, I think trillion dollars will be seen as small and you can only get to those positions um, with a global market. Um, so that is not going to reverse. But I can understand the trepidation, uh, but it's, um, it's simply put, it's technology drives this and, and it will continue to do that. Do you sometimes think that people get confused between capitalism and globalization? There seems to be a bit of a conflict there. I mean, you know, you've only got to think back to uh, uh, our prime minister's speech um, on election night, and she talked about how capitalism had failed New Zealand. But I get uh, there feels as though there's this creep into capitalism versus globalism and that they're one and the same thing. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good um, insight. Um, the confusion, I think, with capitalism is that uh, most people don't quite notice that the 20th century has actually ended. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, admittedly, but we are, we are creating new models of, of society and the old forms, the old discussions we used to have in the 20th century and even prior, um, fairly redundant now and certainly don't describe the actual effects that we see in, in society in the world. Um, we, we also heard uh, some complaints about uh, this particular economic recession we're going into now as being the fault of capitalism. Well, actually, you know, most of the reason we're here is actually the fault of government decision, not necessarily the markets themselves. Uh, and I think what's, I think what most people forget about globalization um, and when in comparison to capitalism as well is that it's actually 
hard to live in a free market when you have any form of regulation at all. I don't think there's ever actually been an instance in, in history where you've actually had a totally free market. There's always some government somewhere or some form of government constricting or putting friction in the way of things like monopolies or even duopolies um, or any of the other perhaps more, more nefarious um, aspects of the market. But the, the free market itself, which is an underpinning of the concept of capitalism, um, I think has always been a little bit of an illusion. Um, but of course, you could also say that, you know, you could, you could mistake uh, globalization for uh, worldwide socialism as well. But again, I think at that point, you're starting to encapsulate the 20th century and the 21st century. I'm, I'm being arbitrary by saying something changed in the year 2000. You know, putting a date on it is, is always arbitrary. But I think going back to the technology piece, uh, the 90s was, was certainly a transition uh, era, a decade. Um, the 2000s have carried that transition on. Uh, and now more than ever, I, I, I think the market really decides um, how politics goes. And I'm not sure you can call that capitalism because uh, there's, there's so many different forms of, of the market around the world. Um, you've got the, the Chinese version, you've got the American version, you've got the Anglo version, there's the European version, um, whatever's emerging in South Asia and India, um, they've got their versions. Uh, and there's always these things wrapped inside them with the local cultures, the local um, uh, norms, and maybe even religions. They do impact how all those different markets work. To call all of that capitalism is, I think you're probably missing something there. And um, going back to your point about mistaking the two differences. Um, and I, as, as I said before, I think globalization is actually a function of technology rather than uh, politics. So we definitely have to start coming up with new names. And that's the job of historians. Um, and they might look at this period and, and wonder why we carried over um, these placeholder names like capitalism for, for so long, uh, when we very clearly have uh, are in an, another era. And it's just a matter of thinking differently and outside the box and, and, and calling, calling this what it is, which I think is a, um, a market state. Uh, and there are different forms of market states going forward in this. And it's just a matter of developing them. You know, successful economies historically have been ones where foreign trade, both imports and exports, are rising as a share of GDP, especially the small countries where they, you know, worldwide, we're seeing that they are growing their GDP at a very, very fast rate uh, in comparison to their developed world. But, you know, New Zealand is one of the few advanced countries where our foreign trade as a share of GDP is actually shrinking. Even at the height of globalization, you know, we're not growing. Any comments? Yeah, although I'm not, there's plenty of um, much smarter economists at the initiative than mm. myself. Um, a couple of points do flow out from that. One is um, there are negative effects of uh, sending your manufacturing overseas. Uh, it's not all positive. When you measure everything like economists tend to do in evidence-based um, ways with, with usually a dollar sign somewhere, um, you can you can certainly judge uh, that most things would be beneficial when that dollar sign uh, reflects a very low cost uh, and things are going in the right direction when that happens. But there are unspoken um, uh, consequences of making sure that you have the lowest cost for, for production of goods. Mm. I'll give you one example. A factory worker 
1930 in, in New Zealand or even 1950 um, would have spent his working life at the mill developing you know over and over again similar types of products and as, as he was doing that he was because it was generally a guy um, he was getting experience he was thinking as he was uh, churning out whatever he was churning out um, how might I do this more efficiently how might I innovate um, incrementally to make this particular factory process faster to produce more and that practice that doing things over and over again with your hands and um, you know maybe that number eight men, uh, mentality uh, where you're you have to deal with what you've got because the supply chains are so far away you have to think outside the box and that's where invention comes from uh, we now call that innovation but i think those two terms are, are conflated together innovation is creating a better mousetrap but in, invention is creating a mousetrap when no one else has heard of the term before there's very, very little invention happening anymore. And I think a result of um, globalization, um, an unspoken result of it, might be that the people who would have been gaining experience and seeing and asking themselves a question over how do I make this better are no longer able to do that because the factories are in China. Mm. Um, and so the Chinese or the Vietnamese or, or wherever we've sent our factories off to, they're the ones that are actually earning the experience. They're the ones that are practicing. They're the ones that are seeing opportunity for innovation and invention. And you can see a lot of patents being filed in places like uh, China and some of these developing countries. Um, whereas, you know, in New Zealand, I hate to say it, but most tech startups, especially software startups, their chief competitor is a basic spreadsheet. Um, they don't actually, they're not actually inventing a lot of things. They are, you know, creating better mousetraps. And I believe that part of uh, the reason for, you know, that, that shrinking um, in foreign trade to, to GDP in New Zealand is something that the government has been bemoaning, which is the low productivity. Um, look, productivity is a hard thing to get go get going again or to or to uh, boost when you really don't have the generation of experience in your country to develop new ideas uh, and to come up with uh, different ways of doing things to sell to, an, to, to now a global market and competing with a whole bunch of people who are coming up with new ideas. Uh, and so, so that's an unspoken. It's hard to quantify that, which is probably why economists don't really like thinking about it. It's probably more of a philosophical point, but I do think it's actually, it's worth thinking about. Um, so it sort of all flows back to what sort of people are New Zealand creating? Um, are we the kinds of people who invent things or are we the kinds of people who innovate things? Um, if we're not the kinds of people who invent things, actually create new mousetraps, the different mousetraps, um, or fully mousetraps when there are no mousetraps prior, then I'm not really sure the world wants to buy a better mousetrap um, when someone else can just do it faster and get to market uh, quicker than we can. So I think there are some, some deep questions New Zealand needs to ask about how we might offset some of the negative externalities and negative outcomes of things like globalization in order to get our share of GDP to foreign trade maybe back up. We do rely, I think, overly heavily on some of our primary goods, especially dairy. Uh, there's not a lot of, you know, I, I wouldn't want to knock um, Fonterra or A2 Milk or any of the others, but they, they're not exactly um, creating phenomenally new products. Uh, in fact, shipping um, uh, powdered milk off to China for them to reconstitute um, is actually a fairly simple task, I would hazard. Um, but New Zealand, I think, does need to uh, consider that there are negative aspects to globalization and they may end up having flow-on effects 
for how you can now compete on a global level. So would it be that we would be locking ourselves into a um, lowly priced set of commodities where others are basically their wallet share is growing at a larger rate than ours just because of the fact that they're more innovative, whereas, whereas we, you know, we're still selling frozen meat and milk powder? And there will always be a need for protein like that, um, understandably. And as you know, our, our export markets and our peer, peer countries develop and, and grow their, their middle class, they do want more protein. We've, that's, that's historically borne out to be true. So we're in a good spot if we want to maintain those markets. But the question is, how do we leverage that to create the, the kinds of goods and the kinds of productivity that those markets might want otherwise like uh, I, and we're not going to create a New Zealand for instance a competitor to, to Apple you know Apple basically has the might of Washington behind it um, it's not its products not aren't necessarily better than anything in Samsung it's just the size of the um, South Korean state compared to America is minnows to to sharks it's just not going to happen in New Zealand and there is discussion um, I think in, in, in government about creating more wood processing manufacturers um, in, in New Zealand rather than sending raw logs overseas. Well, the Russians tried that um, halfway through um, the 2010s. Uh, they said, well, we're going to start to encourage more domestic wood processing manufacturing in, in Russia rather than sending things off to China. And we're going to send the Chinese finished tables and couches. Well, the Chinese just said, we're not going to shut down our own domestic manufacturing of wood. Um, so we're just going to go and find a place that will sell us the logs. And they came to New Zealand, which is why our forestry um, uh, industry has has risen. And Russia was left holding quite a big bag of not very nice smelling excrement. Uh, and that was a bad move for them. But the, the point of what, what Russia was trying to do, I think, was still sound, which is encourage some sort of domestic manufacturing where they can compete on a global level and start to develop some of that uh, hard-won experience and, and practice that you do need to invent things to actually become world leaders. And, and for that, you do need the state behind you to help you out. Perhaps you, they should have thought about it, about doing it uh, differently. Um, but I think the philosophy is true. It's just China moved too quickly. Uh, and I think New Zealand needs to be careful uh, that if it does decide to you know, manufacture wood or uh, to create um, value-added products with our meat and our, our other protein deliveries, um, the, the, our export markets might just shift to somewhere else to get them raw again and we'd be left holding uh, a similarly smelling bag. It deserves attention, but it deserves careful economic analysis as well about how we might do it. Um, but I don't think this is a, an either-or situation. Um, hey, so just a, a, a slightly more localised question. And when I mean localised, I mean... You know, I know that our productivity has been shrinking for a couple of decades. We're well, not shrinking, but it just hasn't been growing over the last couple of decades. So thinking about the now, do you think the government should be easing up and letting the private sector recognise the opportunities in this country so that people can get back to employment, meaningful employment, as fast as possible? Yeah, and actually what we've been talking about with globalisation is, uh, is a part of this. It wasn't a good sign that I think it was about two weeks ago uh, David Parker, our Minister of Trade at the moment, hmm. uh, tabled and then passed a bill to update the OIA, which is the Overseas Investment Act, uh, to in, in response to the crisis, uh, but also in a, in, in a good-natured attempt to uh, stimulate the economy again and to protect the New Zealand economy. Because when, obviously, uh, the recession hits, 
a lot of assets drop in value. And if you've still got, if you're still quite liquid uh, in, in other countries, you can come in and buy, buy assets in, in, in struggling countries at bargain basement prices. So from the government's perspective, they didn't want that to happen. And understandably, that's something that the government should at least be thinking about trying to obviate. Um, but I think that the process that they had there, which was updating the OIA, has now made it actually more difficult for the New Zealand economy to, uh, to, to recuperate. I'll give you an example. Uh, prior to this update, the OIA kicked in when an, um, an asset purchase or an equity purchase uh, went above the threshold of $100 million. Now, surprisingly, over the, over the last 10 years or so, the OIA has kicked in multiple times and so there's been a lot of money has come into New Zealand at those high at those high levels mm. so that's a good sign however the update has actually dropped that threshold down to zero dollars which means anybody overseas wanting to send a thousand dollars to help the local fish and chip store um, maybe they've got some friends and family in Oakuni and they need some help um, and they're sending some money overseas in some sort of remittance process well, the OIA would kick in uh, to, to, to check that out. That's not exactly incentivizing um, good foreign investment in New Zealand. Um, and, and I think those sorts of decisions, while they are, they're, they're good-natured, the outcome of that, I think, will be a retardation of growth rather than a protection. Um, again, one of the pieces of, of the legislation that, that's part of the update uh, was to protect nationally significant assets in New Zealand from foreign ownership. But let's just say a Chinese interest bought shares in Auckland's port. It's not like they can take the port with them. Yes. Um, the port will remain. You know, there might be some question about in a, in a time of, I don't know, war or uprest, um, unrest, sorry, um, they might ask their, their um, you know, 50% ownership of New Zealand port to hypothetically let in Chinese spies or, or something. But if you're talking about that, a lot of other things would have had to go wrong in the world in order to even be discussing that. So that would definitely not be high up on the list of priorities for New Zealand government is, is wondering what a Chinese percentage ownership in Auckland port might do um, at this particular point. We'd probably be, be in the middle of one of the hottest wars the, the world has ever fought. So that's not exactly going to be an issue. Of course, when it comes to telcos, and you know, a couple of years ago with the controversy about uh, the Chinese telco Huawei uh, building the 5G network uh, for Spark, that potentially does have a national security implication. And the OIA and the government does probably want to get involved in that and, and just be careful, uh, especially when we are part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Group. Uh, but those, those instances, to me, seem few and far between, certainly don't justify putting more friction um, in, in New Zealand's foreign uh, investment um, uh, potential. And other countries, they don't have to invest in New Zealand. We're a nice to have. We're not a must-have. And there are plenty of other places to find yield, maybe not now, but and, this, and it has been difficult, admittedly, in the past 10 years to find yield in any asset. Um, but we don't have to have investors here. And they could very easily just say, look, it's just getting too hard. I'm pulling out. And that's a very real possibility in this recovery as everybody's desperately trying to find somewhere that's safe. Um, so New Zealand's government has to be very careful that it does balance the um, public interest with the incentive structure and some of the impacts those those effects might have on the market. Yeah, it's amazing. And um, we've always known that capital moves quickly. Um, it just moves a lot quicker than it has done historically. 
and and we're also finding that human capital moves a lot quicker than it has historically. Mm. Yeah, those those two factors I think aren't going to to change. And uh, and ultimately, you know, if you're putting a bunch of money back into the system as well to stimulate um, the economy, um, it's actually the velocity of money, how fast it moves hands uh, that dictates inflation rates um, and and how and how valuable your currency is. Um, and I don't know how much the government can affect. Um, the velocity of money in an economy, uh, but certainly putting, you know, uh, dipping into the into the reserve bank and and, and printing money um, and and creating debt that way might, in short term, uh, boost things. But ultimately, we have to watch our currency. Um, it's not. It doesn't have to be strong. Um, other countries are definitely going to be d- doing similar things. Uh, and and again, investors don't have to be here if things start to get tough. They can move a lot faster than, than the government can, uh, and, and we, we have to be very careful of that. Nathan, that's been a great discussion, and I really appreciate you joining us and our cohort of listeners. So, you know, once again, thanks for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with you on another interesting topic uh, in the near future. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure.